Hello and welcome to the Scientist to CEO podcast. We talk to scientists turned CEOs about their journey from first discovery to building a company. Today's episode was recorded as part of our monthly talk series. If you'd like to hear more information about it, check out our website at spin-up.science or find us on social media. I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Thomas Frugia, CEO of Betabugs Limited, a biotech startup developing enhanced soldier fly strains for the growing insect farming industry. I asked him about the insect farming market and his personal journey from PhD in chemistry to CEO of an insect breeding company. But first, I want to know how he got interested in insect farming and eating in the first place. It goes back a while. I think something like 2012, I tasted insects in Belgium. Uh, I, was, I was doing an Erasmus placement for three months and I happened to pop, someone had a pop-up stand and they were offering them. They tasted really good, crunchy, a bit nutty. And I was just like, okay. And then uh, I was, uh, when I was doing a PhD at Bristol, so I was wandering around the chemistry chemistry department and actually picked up, I think it was called In Focus or something. That was like a science, uh, science publication by students, uh, a student's club. I said, why not eat insects? And that just reminded me, and I was just like, well, this makes a lot of sense. And there was always that student element of like, I wonder what that could be another protein source to go along with my, you know, mackerel for Mondays and stuff like that, and eggs on Tuesdays, and halloumis on Wednesdays. So uh, I just got really, I got stuck in, I started looking it up. I did the, I mean, the PhD was nothing to relate, so I did the chemistry PhD, but I just kept an eye on the industry. And at the time when I was finishing off, I was thinking, well, startups is a cool thing. And I came across Deep Science Ventures. And uh, then I, I got in touch with them. I had a chat about insect farming. And what then happened was I signed up for the program, uh, Beta Cohort, back in 2017. Went along to London after the PhD and did that for a few months. And it changed. It, it went from being insect farming to insect genetics because we realized insect farming is super capex intensive and no one was doing the genetics, and genetics is what scales and changes industries. Awesome. So, I mean, just you touched on a few things there, but I want to kind of yeah. dive in, dive into them maybe a little bit in reverse order. But you can, <laughs> can you give me a little bit more detail about exactly what the company is trying to do? So what we do is we, we run a breeding program. So we effectively have a, a population of black soldier fly, and we run a breeding program where we improve them genetically so we find the top performers uh, within certain traits and then we score them and then we make sure that the ones which are scored the most make it to the next generation so it's effectively selective breeding and then you can start bolting on further stuff onto it but it's selective breeding with quantitative genetics at the moment the end goal is to create genetic improvement uh, which we then so we've got a small elite population basically it's like when you look at genetics you have this nuclear uh, a nucleus at the top of what's like a multiplication pyramid. And you can think of it as a small population of elite genetics or improved genetics. And then you need to make sure it gets out into the rest of the supply chain. So what you do is you multiply it up and you bring, so you effectively grow it out further and then you disseminate it to the companies which will farm the insects. And what that means then is they get better performing insects. So things which grow faster, grow bigger, are more efficient so that changes their their operating conditions and their eventually increases their revenues 
to go into that one level deeper, just what are the exact kind of benefits of this sort of approach of, of, of eating insects at the end of the day? From a, from a insect protein usage, what you get is a very, it's a regional source of protein, so you can produce it uh, within countries like the UK and others, so you can actually cut off the dependencies on importing proteins. It, within animal, animal protein perspective, the, the main ones we use in animal feed right now are soya, and there is fish meal as well. And those have a, a heavy environmental impact. Soya uh, can lead to extensive deforestation when you look at what's going on in the Amazon. Uh, the majority of soya is used for animal feed. I think it's in the range of 90%. And uh, you've got an import footprint in terms of a carbon footprint just to import it in as well. Again, so insect protein means you can produce it regionally. Uh, you can use it, produce it using waste streams and you can produces all year round, it's not seasonal, it's, so you can vertically farm it actually. And the footprint's really teeny compared to farming crops. Yes, it's, uh, I think we're, we're looking at doing, uh, internally we're doing some LCA work in terms of uh, initial LCAs, just to see what our operating an egg production facility does, for example, in terms of CO2. But then you can also look at, okay, by supplying our genetics to companies, what does that do in terms of CO2? There's already been some really great work in terms of across the industries showing, for example, if you locate against an existing facility producing, for example, uh, a starchy product, uh, a carbohydrate-based product, you can actually use that to beat the bugs on and you take the heat from the facility as well. And you're basically producing a very low carbon source of protein in terms of carbon footprint. And uh, the insect farming industry in the UK actually made a bit of news back in December last year with Morrison saying they're going to buy 10 shipping container units from a Cambridge-based company, Better Origin, uh, and that will be enabling them to produce effectively carbon-free or carbon-neutral eggs, uh, which they can then sell to consumers. Are consumers the end kind of user of this, consumer of this? If you take it to its con like logical, like, yeah, across the supply chain, it will be yeah. consumers buying the products which are reared on insect protein. And that's the animal insects as feed industry. That's where we are. We're we're about black soldier prim primarily is to be used as a protein source in animal feed. Right. That means feeding the fish, pigs, chickens, and uh, those will eventually get eaten by people. What is the market reaction to that as a concept? Is that already something that is reasonably pervasive and well understood, or is that something mm -hmm. that you're also having to change hearts and minds about? I, I think it's reasonably well understood, especially as more retailers come on board. In France, uh, there's been some really good work done by insect protein companies where they've created su full supply chain relationships. And the supermarket actually buys in and is marketing it as a sustainable product. And uh, then you effectively have the supermarket buying in and then that influences the whole supply chain. So the fish, uh, the fish producers will use the insects in their fish feed. The fish feed manufacturers will formulate for it and integrate it into the pellet and then you have the insect producer producing it so i think that's more we'll see more of this happening in industry and uh, definitely i think it's it's kind of pushing on an open door it's going to happen and it just needs scale it needs more scale as an industry basically can I ask a little bit about kind mm -hmm. of what you guys are trying to do that differentiates you from maybe what the other actors, competitors out there are trying to do? What makes us different is we're solely focused on the breeding uh, and the genetics. So we 100% focus on that. We don't produce protein. That means we don't compete with our customers. We're all about enabling our customers. 
And then because of that focus, we're developing technologies and approaches which you can't really do when you're working as a, as a protein producer at scale uh, because we answer different questions basically to what a protein producer needs to answer. We're all about uh, how do you build the best pedigree and how do you build, how do you find the best individuals? How do you do that very quickly before they all turn into flies and things like that? Whereas protein producers are about how do we produce this at scale? How do you bring the price down significantly? So, I mean, talk to me a little bit more about this, the science, I guess, like what makes a good end bug for you guys? Like, what are you trying to optimize for? So in terms of what we optimize for, we, we do larval growth, we do larval size, and then we, uh, along with survival rate and a bit of development time built in. And then what you're really doing is you're measuring those traits and you effectively pick the top performers. I can't go too to end there because that's kind of like what makes a secret sauce, but you're effectively scoring across a number of traits as in any animal breeding program and then making sure that the individuals with those traits make it to the next generation and keep improving and you just transfer the improvement over time it then boils down to really good execution on your breeding program it's no point if you can identify the best ones but you can't select them or you can't take them to the next generation and you start losing so it's about making sure you've got very good husbandry good stockmanship and uh, make sure the bugs are happy okay awesome can I uh, rewind even further and kind of mm -hmm. understand how you found yourself even thinking about this as a concept? Like, I, I appreciate you had the, the insect tasting moment, yeah. uh, but how did you go from, maybe I'm interested in building a company that uh, yeah. produces insects to actually that switch and let's go into genetics. Can you just walk me through some of that story? There was actually, there is a bit more in there so I can unpack it, but when we when we were looking at uh, insect farming initially, we said, okay, how can we make insect farming easier and more scalable? And uh, what happened there was like, okay, can we can we leverage any behaviors? And we I remember we were talking to a cricket uh, cricket evolution biologist about this actually, and then it's kind of okay, you can maybe you can breed for certain behaviors, and then it becomes a bit like oh breeding, and then you start thinking oh well breeding actually not just for certain behaviors we can breed for performance and hey this is a whole industry it's a thing and then you look at supply chains and you realize there's a breeding company in each supply chain at least one usually two uh, there were many more before they consolidated usually and that's the bit which creates all the difference it's like it kind of it's the really techie the high-tech bit of the industry usually in terms of the their breeding companies are innovation engines by default and when you look at the way, when we're thinking about, okay, we want to do something scalable, we saw that breeding companies literally do scale because uh, I'll give you an idea. I think it's something like one male rooster and 11 female chickens, uh, which would be at the top of the pyramid, would become something like, you know, 3 million chickens. It'll take five years till they get to market, but that's what the genetics does. You, you just multiply that. And is it, so I think it's, it's that which kind of got us into it. And, uh, and we, we really saw it as well as bugs being kind of like a middle world between the plant breeding world and the animal breeding world. You can apply both techniques, like approaches. There's like a few approaches from plant breeding and a few from animal. And that's kind of how we started building beetle bugs out. I'd say we lean more towards animal right now, but there is stuff in plant again, in terms of the thinking, which can be applied. So, uh... And did this, this kind of thought process, was this running through your mind whilst you were doing 
the PhD? Were you kind of saying in the back of your head, like, okay. I want to jump out of this and build a company at the end of it? Uh, actually, so this is, a, this is a funny one in itself. No, it's, it, that, that thought process was over three months at Deep Science Ventures in the summer. What happened, though, was the thought process which led me to apply to Deep Science Ventures was, well, startups are interesting. Uh, actually, my, my girlfriend at the time was also working in a startup, so I was like, well, this looks interesting. I'll just see what startups are all about. I did find Deep Science Ventures on an angel list post, which was really fun, like a job posting. I had a conversation with them. That was really, like, it got, it got thinking. And he kind of realized there's this funny world of people building things from the ground up. And I think it appealed. I had no idea it would work. I just said, well, you know what? If this doesn't work, I'll go to a postdoc. It's three months. It's a three-month, like, mini sabbatical holiday or something. And then, like, I think it kind of dawned on me towards the end of uh, the Deep Science Ventures program uh, that this thing kind of had legs. And then it was like... I, but I only think I realized like probably like a year in or something like that it was going to go, like you can make a good place because it was a very big roller coaster at the start. Like very big roller coaster and lots of learning curves. Uh, a steep learning curve, that's the one, yeah. And how did, how did you find that kind of, um, I guess, switch in headspace of like a PhD from being yeah. like, I have an area, I'm going smaller and smaller and deeper and deeper into that area yeah. to kind of that market pull approach. Like I'm out there just, you know, thinking laterally, looking for problems, like mm -hmm. what things about the PhD headspace helped you? What things about the PhD headspace held you back? Uh, PhD, I think PhD, I was quite lucky during PhD, I did a number of projects. So I kind of like had to move along and there's there's that element of problem solving in the PhD. Uh, and usually it's the stuff you don't always expect and you have to find a way around it. I think that's very applicable to when you're starting up a company as well and identifying spaces, you, you kind of scope things out. Uh, what can hold you back? What what did hold me back? I think it's it's sometimes like actually not not a self confidence thing, but you like not like your abilities, right? You haven't proved them out to the degree, and I think it's really realizing actually that a lot of the stuff that gets done in the PhD really transfers over beautifully in terms of project management. Like you've you've run your own project for three and a half years, you actually sometimes end up supervising people as well. And that's, that's just great for project management. I really, if I was to go to school kids nowadays, I would definitely encourage everyone to learn how to write essays because essay writing and just any writing, form of writing, that's how you build your grant applications out. That's how you build uh, cases for support in terms of engaging with partners. There is definitely a lot in there in terms of writing. It's such a powerful tool. And uh, I mean, you can literally put a price on a word when you're writing a bid, which is a bit scary. And uh, I think the presentation skills transfer over beautifully as well in terms of, again, you're building, as, if, you can, if you can do outreach during the PhD, and I was really lucky uh, that in Bristol, Chem Lab was so great in terms of Tim Harrison's work. It was, that was just a great opportunity because he just got so good at presenting to people and crowds of people. And I think that if you get the opportunity to do that and you get the opportunity to present, that can just carry over because, well, that's what you're doing with investors, pitching. And to the degree, when, when you've got that, group of people you want to be able to communicate it succinctly and uh, without going too much into technical detail but then you sometimes have to shift gears and go technical so that flexibility i think also comes from a phd and understanding your audience and then i think just personal management and the fact that in a phd you're doing something i mean i, I used to draw that phd means persistence hard work and dedication which is true actually and I think that carries over uh, again into startups because you need to be able to show up day in, day out 
to to just get the work done and that's what makes progress it's you can have the greatest idea but you need to execute on it and it's the same in the phd mostly yeah i mean it's that element of kind of resilience and almost stubbornness and refusing to give up even when you're starting to kind of you know hit your head against the wall maybe trying to find investment or trying to write a paper whatever it is how, how did you find kind of bolting those um skill sets on maybe like talking to investors or building yeah. a financial model like how did you find that upskilling process um went went for your coming straight out of the phd yeah i think you definitely to the degree like you don't recognize maybe what you need to know initially it's like there's like you don't know what you need to know uh that makes sense and then you kind of start realizing so you need to learn you i wouldn't say i'd say the first the first year two years nearly were learning uh, i was very i think i learned a lot i learned by doing but you also in, in your first two years as a founder i think you, you you can learn by doing but you also want to learn by observing and if you've got someone a bit ahead of you that actually really helps you can nearly have a role model and a bit of a mentor to learn from because otherwise you don't exactly know how your how your work is going nowadays i do a lot of my learning again from peer-to-peer uh, -peer interaction so that's another great thing if you've got like a if you can find people in the same role as you uh again also in startups and things like that you can get a peer-to-peer -peer group like even if you just have a phone call every three four weeks and you just talk through what's going on in your role and help out with what they're going through with their role and just listen and also provide advice you can learn a lot and then I really believe in book reading. Like uh, book reading feels a bit like upgrade yourself. So if you can engage with a book properly and, and take the learnings from it and apply it, which always becomes a bit more challenging when, when you tie some time and stuff like that. And it's also like non-heavy non-fiction, uh, but that's a great way as well. Is there anything you would uh, go about kind of changing or shortcutting, short-circuiting for yourself, uh, looking back over kind of yeah, okay. the process to evolve to where you are now? I don't think I could have done it any other way uh, in this, like with Betabugs, probably. I mean, one way would have been a bit more time until like starting to execute, potentially. You know, you take a bit more time to ease in because the more, the closer you get to market and like once you even incorporate and stuff like that, it becomes a bit more solidified and it's a bit harder to like change things around. If alternatively you were five years ahead and I was like, working on something else, maybe, you know, you build up a bit more of a stash in terms of savings and you say, okay, I'll go to the loan for, you know, I'll give it a go for six months or nine months and you kind of run it off your own funds and then you go and find investment. For example, there's stuff like that. But I really think like the path which led to beta bugs as it is now would be, uh, I've been quite hard to replicate if I, if I didn't do it at that time. Basically. So would you say like um, moving almost straight out of that university setting, straight into i'm trying to get my own thing up and off the ground actually is quite a good learning process rather than say jumping into a startup first or working for someone else first or anything along those lines actually diving in works i think both can work if you it depends i probably had thoughts about work back then i was like hmm, what would i like to do i remember checking a whole bunch of things out this did this did appeal if you can get experience under your belt in a startup uh, i'd recommend if you can get even in a corporate or like it gives you the experience of managing people so there's different ways of building up that experience and then you can roll into uh startup like starting your own thing up the, the caveat there then is uh, looking back probably i was able to do was i was pretty much used to living i mean 
PhD uh, stipend is quite like, you know, you learn how to live on that in terms of effectively. And moving into beta bugs, you, I was able to maintain that. And uh, you kind of learn to live it. It's a bit Spartan maybe, but you don't have the trappings and other things that if you're in a big, uh, in a well-paid job or anything like that, and you have to then take this hit, uh, can be a bit of a challenge that you build up again. So uh, yeah, I think start in that regard, PhD probably helped. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what what I guess was the, if there was one, like primary motivation in your mind for an entrepreneurial pathway? I, I enjoy, I think I enjoy, uh, I enjoy new things. I also enjoy trying new things. And what really, I think even like back before uni and stuff, I remember always being really interested in the cutting edge. Actually, I like to call it, there's, you've got the cutting edge, but then you've got the bleeding edge, which is the bit which is being cut. And that's even further ahead. And I just really like that idea of being, building something at the bleeding edge. And I think Beetlebugs is, allows me to do that uh, in its own way. And uh, I, I probably had a bit of an entrepreneurial streak in me, not massive, but like small things I did, uh, in the run-up to uni and stuff like that, like selling water bottles at the jam packed festival and things like that. Like, you know, like, and those were just really good fun. You're finding like these little spots and, and trying to leverage them. And I think the other thing which I enjoy is uh, the interactions with people and also being able to spot opportunities and like build across a network. Um, take something which is, you know, it comes back to like, like grant stuff and writing. Uh, I mean, and the PhD is the same, right? You've got these ideas and then you, you execute and then you you make it real. And I think that's also part of it at the start of like, you've got this idea and you, you gradually build it into reality. And I think that's a really empowering thing as well. You enjoy it. And like when you're creating jobs and stuff, it's and having impact on people, like positive impact, that's also is very satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of like a, it's a, balance of all of the good bits almost of the PhD it's like yeah. sitting really close to the edge of like what is the absolute limit of technology it's also being in control of your direction in that mm -hmm. process uh, and it's getting to choose things that you find kind of mean personally meaningfully impactful yeah uh, yeah absolutely yeah. Was, was was there anything that kind of equally dissuaded you for why you didn't want to try and find that sort of a space within industry or within academia or any, any yeah. of those sort of spaces I think I probably didn't have as much an appreciation for, for how industry worked probably. So I might've not considered this as much at the time. And with academia, I think there was just the, it, I'm not as close to academia now in terms of looking at it, but there was definitely that feel of, I still remember like back pre-PhD, my master's advisor time, you've got this five-year shelf life in academia when you're in your postdoc years, you've got this five-year shelf life to get a permanent post. And I think there was increasingly when you did reading about it and, for example, finding a post and it, it felt, going back to what you said about like, you know, being a bit in control of your future, to a degree you are when you're postdocing, but at the same time you're not because, you, I mean, you get your project and you work on it, but you don't know where the post is going to turn up potentially. And so it felt a bit, a bit more, uh, a, a, a bigger element of randomness to it, I would say, at the time. And I, I think, but I did go into deep science ventures, generally thinking, if this doesn't work out, I will go and do a postdoc. So it just, this kept working. It was the main thing. I guess that's always a, a bit of an element of finding yourself almost in the right place at the right 
time where the technology is ready to be evolved mm -hmm. from you know TRL something to the point where you could spin it out that needs to coincide with also at the end of your PhD. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a dart that you can throw and sometimes hit the bullseye, but probably is quite a difficult thing to rely. It's quite on difficult, actually. I think, and that's where the postdoc might give you a bit more of the flexibility as well. If it's not finished yet in the PhD, you know, you can, you can probably if there's my if there's legs in it, it's taking it forwards, and then. And the tricky, I think what you want to avoid there then is getting stuck in the trying to fit the technology. Like you, you want to find the right fit for it early on, because otherwise you might just find yourself shopping the technology around a whole bunch of things. If you've got a clear pull, it's definitely like a go for it. But I mean, obviously you came from a field that was different to what you're now kind of spending your day to day in. Like was, mm -hmm. do you find there was any kind of benefit or advantage to like applying a different headspace, a different set of kind of like tools into that equation? Or is it very much throw away everything you know, try and relearn I don't this think... new field from scratch? Yeah, well, you definitely learn how to learn. Uh, whilst in general, you know, any, any degree teaches you to learn how to learn. I think I've actually kept a bit of the stuff I know. I, I'm not a biologist, I mean, actually like, my like genetics has basically been you know reading up talking to others in the space and understanding it and then crafting by looking at the rest of the the rest of the industry and how you know parallels and finding parallels and then i think the chemistry stuff still stands you instead and in, in my case at least in terms of spectroscopy and understanding uh proteins and all that kind of stuff you can actually apply it and again in terms of experimental design being able to tell if a good experiment, if an experiment is designed well or not, you, you can you can take all the the meaty chunks. You can definitely. I don't think you'll take the the really, you know. I was working on bioconjugated films made out of like bioconjugated proteins made into films. I can't apply that, <laughs> but the rest built around it. Yes. Do you think that same is uh, true of moving that kind of scientist headspace into the CEO role equally as well as like? Because that's kind of what you're describing is like the CTO. Yeah, it's a new field, it's a new discipline, but it's like mm -hmm. kind of the CTO or, or you know development role. Do you think that same scientific brain applied to the CEO role gives you an advantage? You can have a bit of. I think you, you can have a bit of it. You don't want to. I think sometimes you need to go broader picture. Like you can get stuck into the details sometimes, and like I think in a science mode, sometimes you need to kind of zoom out and go broader picture. Uh, that's my assumption as a science, you know, you're stuck into the detail. The, I think it's still like the logical thinking, like you're just walking through things helps, but you definitely get a different set of interactions going on then, especially once like CEO, you're thinking more in terms of sometimes you'll have business angles to it. Uh, factoring in align alignments uh, to a degree, sometimes you get politics as well. So it's all kind of all those elements, which in a way in science we say we're removed from, right? You're working with the object or your question. This is assuming a hard science, by the way, that's, and that's where I'm coming from. Like other things will be a bit more uh, in flux. So I can see, yeah, th there's elements which do carry over, but some which could actually become a bit of a hindrance and especially and I think that's the bit I like looking back in terms of, you know, like you look at the PhD and stuff like that, like there was less interaction in terms of you've got your own project and that's about it, but you don't like cross work across projects, but as much wide at least that means you kind of like the people building skills and working with people skills can, can vary in terms of 
being very good if you're working across projects to less, I would say, in my case. Sure. So, I mean, it almost it kind of almost sounds like you're describing, you feel like you wear kind of two hats, like sometimes you're wearing the scientist hat and it's useful yeah. to you to be able to look at something very deep, very analytically, mm -hmm. but sometimes you kind of switch it over to the CEO hat or, or you know. Yeah, you have of, to go a bit broader. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. But at least I guess the benefit is that you have the opportunity to then switch switch hats rather than, you know, only coming from, say, a business background, moving into it and just having that CEO hat that you can wear. Actually, you can look at it through the eyes of the technologist and work out where yeah. are the pitfalls, where are the roadblocks, rather than relying on someone in your team to feed mm -hmm. that information to you. And there's, I think there's another bit to it is, well, again, I think people come, like, if you're coming from a science or a PhD background and you're building a company which will, you know, have a strong base of science, people, like, the ability to understand a what they've been through if they're coming out of phd as well or they're still in the phd process or you know like they're finishing writing up and you're looking to hire them and stuff like that you can really understand that hmm. and uh, and also engaging with them and like having the conversation at the scientific level as well uh, rather than just like the the strategic level or you know like the, the business level hmm. you need to make sure there's the link and that's really important and i think I mean, you can see, it. I think Intel did it very well because they mixed their knowledge people with their business people. And I, we, at Betabugs, we also try and like, you know, get the link between the science people and the business people like really built in because they influence each other a lot. I mean, in the end, the breeding program is literally the, like generating the product, which is going to go up to insect farms. Yeah. Hey, awesome. Uh, what was the most valuable piece of advice that you have been given on your journey so far, would you say? I think it's a lot of a lot of it boils down to keep going, you know. There's a lot of that is like, you know, okay, you've got this, this has happened, just put your head down and keep going. Let, let me flip the question on its head and say, uh, okay. if someone was uh, kind of, you know, or you were talking to yourself five years ago, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or someone kind of coming up through the ranks looking to follow a similar pathway, what would yeah. your key piece of advice be to them? Less, less haste, more speed. I think there's sometimes a thing about the startup trite where it's like, execute fast, execute fast, which is true, you do need to, but sometimes it can feel like you're just spinning the gears. Um, some things just fall into place on their own. You, you, they will nudge, you need to nudge them, but you don't need to really, really try and push them or like you just put yourself under a lot of pressure when they are progressing in their own right. So sometimes that's what I mean. If you try and make more haste, you'll actually go slower. It's a bit like, that's another good one, right? Sometimes a shortcut's not a shortcut. It's in, that, it's in that vein. I, I have to remind myself of this. So actually, that answers the first question as well. <laughs> okay, I like it. I think uh, like off the back of that question, I guess, how do you, how have you found managing kind of uh, the weight, the responsibilities of taking the helm of, of a company, of having investors on your back, of having employees at yeah. the end of the day that, you know, need to get paid, all of those sorts of pieces. How, how have you kind of, yeah, found yourself in that role what has it been like? How have you dealt with it? It's okay. So it's the, I think one of, one of the ones is like, it is a bit lonely at the top, but that's just the contract with the territory. It, uh, that means you, you have to take, sometimes you have to take hard decisions. Sometimes you have to take decisions you might not enjoy. Uh, so you have to get comfortable around that. I think it's important to have a good routine and a good way of maintaining mental health and like your, your health in general, like you will take like face on quite a lot of stress. So, physical like physical exercise for me is like key and uh, as is like you know having a regular routine around meditation and just being able to focus and building the time in for yourself to focus as well 
and, and execute. So I think those are the main ones. And then when you're working with a team, it's, it's always very important to remember because you, like, I think it's very much, you can build things as a role, right? And the role is, when you think about a role in a company and you look at organograms, right? It's a square or some sort of shape with a distinct boundary. And it's got a line coming out that says, this goes here. But actually, humans are very squishy things. You, you really need to understand that when you're working with your team because and yourself as well because everyone's a human i need to factor that into how you interact with one another and so yeah i think that's very important when you're working with 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 team members as well otherwise otherwise it's just a bit like uh you, it doesn't go far otherwise I'd say. Yeah, absolutely so it's a bit of a balance of like having routine do regularly uh scheduled service <laughs> service mm -hmm. of yourself i guess like make make sure you're happy and functional so that you can actually deliver on the job that you're yeah to I, deliver on i think it helps if you enjoy what like i enjoy lifting a kettlebell and stuff like that you <laughs> sometimes it's hard but you still you're still making like as long as you feel you're improving yourself and you've got you've got other hobbies as well and stuff like i sit down and paint models and i find that's a great way of just like tuning out other things and just you sit down and you paint models uh, but everyone will have their own thing. It's just finding those things, which, you know, mean even if you worked a long day, you go home and if you're not doing anything else, you just recharge your batteries and then you can go in for another day. I mean, the, the, the idea that everyone should work, you know, like again, startup, like you're working around the clock. And I did do that for a while, like a beat up initially. Like if you keep doing that, you will grind, you will eventually grind down. I think that's my perspective on it. So, just being kind to yourself and building in the stuff which allows you to go for a long distance helps. Uh, again, another piece of advice is like, it's not sprint, it's a marathon. And, uh, and again, a great analogy with the PhD is it's not a marathon based on a fixed distance. It's you've got so much time, how much ground can you get, cover in a given amount of time? That's what it is, same with startup. Betabugs are on a mission to double the output of an entire industry through the use of genetics. By doing this, they are enabling insect protein to hold a competitive place in the livestock feeding market, ultimately offering a greener alternative to environmentally damaging products like soy meal. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Thomas Ferruja, CEO of Betabugs. My name is Dr. Ben Miles, and this has been the Scientist to CEO podcast. Thank you for listening. See you next time.